Welcome to Deckert's LIBORcast, where industry leaders come to talk LIBOR transition. Hello and welcome to today's session, which is the 16th installment of the Deckert LIBORcasts. I'm Sarah Smith, a partner in the global finance practice at Deckert LLP based in London. And the clients with whom I work range across the spectrum of users of financial products. So they include bank and non-bank lenders, borrowers and investors in and issuers of debt instruments, all of whom are impacted by the transition away from the LIBOR benchmark rates to risk-free reference rates. My co-host in today's session is Karen Stretch, who's also a partner in Deckett's London office, and she is part of our financial services team, whose practice focuses on derivatives and related matters. As well as leading Deckett's coverage of the impact of LIBOR transition on derivatives, Karen is the go-to person for LIBOR issues for our financial services practice group. Karen and I are both members of Deckett's Global LIBOR Transition Task Force, which has been driving our efforts to assist clients in dealing with the issues raised by the transition away from LIBOR. We focus predominantly on UK, European and Asian aspects of the LIBOR transition and work very closely with our colleagues on the task force in the United States who focused on US issues. Thanks, Sarah. We are delighted to be joined today by Cam Marhill, Senior Director at the Loan Market Association, the LMA. Loan products are widely viewed as presenting some of the more complex aspects of LIBOR transition for a number of reasons, including the diversity of different loan products and the wide spectrum of borrowers from consumers to large conglomerates. It is estimated that globally, trillions of dollars of syndicated loans still need to be amended or replaced to provide for a LIBOR alternative. In the sterling market, this year has seen several milestones set by the Working Group on Sterling Risk-Free Reference Rates with respect to the use of sterling LIBOR come and pass, including the milestone reached on 1st of April this year. No new sterling LIBOR-linked loans should be entered into from this date if the loan has a tenor beyond 31st of December this year. Cam, together with her colleague Keith Taylor, have been leading the LMA's work on LIBOR transition, educating and engaging with members to assist in seeking consensus on various aspects of the loan market's transition away from LIBOR and to develop new template documentation. Cam, thanks for taking the time to speak with us on LIBOR transition and for offering to share the LMA's perspective and work on these issues. We'll come on to this shortly, but we know you're involved in many groups and subgroups for LIBOR, so you have a lot going on. We will go into some of the more technical issues, but what we really want to use this session for is to get your high-level download on the LMA's approach to LIBOR transition and current issues so our listeners can understand more about the LMA's work in this area. Before we start the questions, Cam, it would be great for our audience if you could give us a recap on your role and the LMA's work on LIBOR transition very generally. Great. Thank you, Karen. And thank you also to Sarah for inviting me to this LIBOR cast. Uh, so I'm part of the legal team at the LMA with a focus across uh, investment grade, leverage finance, and also export and commodity finance. Uh, but since Andrew Bailey's speech in 2017 uh, on the future of LIBOR, I have spent a large part of my time focusing on LIBOR transition in the loan market. Um, and as you'll both know, this is a very uh, involved 
topic and for me has meant representing the LMA and the loan market on the various currency working groups globally, uh, drafting industry papers for those working groups, regular dialogue with regulators, uh, but also other trade associations and key players in the industry, uh, responding to the many consultations that have taken place, along with education of members and the wider market, and of course, producing documentation and guides for the market as well. Thank you, Cam. Um, before we hear more about some of the specifics of the LMA's uh, work on LIBOR, we'd like to start with a big question. We're hearing a lot about 2021 being the year for LIBOR transition, irrespective of currency. In your view, what is the current state of play for LIBOR transition in the loan markets? And before you answer, I have to say that I really love the countdown clock on the LMA website, which I think does rather focus the mind on the timeline. Thank you. I completely agree. It does really focus the mind. And if you uh, haven't visited the microsite in a while, it can surprise you just how little time is actually left. Uh, and you can see the seconds counting down. Um, I, I think the loan market has actually come a really long way in the last year. Um, it was mentioned in the introduction that the Q1 deadline in sterling for no new sterling LIBOR facilities is now in effect. And that seems to have gone relatively smoothly. And we are seeing deals being done and confidence gaining from clear conventions being in place in most jurisdictions and also the production of recommended form documentation. I think that the tools for transition in the loan market are largely in place, but the key focus now is on legacy transition, which is a very big task, but also trying to increase confidence in transacting multi-currency deals given the different paces of transition. Thanks, Cam. So you've already covered a lot of issues there. But starting with the, the LMA's work itself and turning to what you've been doing so far, for the benefit of those listeners who are not in the detail as much as you or I, can you set out for us in basic terms the current position on how the LMA has approached LIBOR transition across its recommended form documents? Yeah, sure. So we currently have a set of core risk-free rate documents which members can use for the transition. And those were originally published as exposure drafts, but we moved those to recommended forms in March. And essentially, there are two approaches available. So one is having a, a LIBOR document with an inbuilt switch to risk-free rates. Uh, and the second is having a day one uh, risk-free rate deal coupled with URIBOR for euros. Uh, and we've also published a document to assist with legacy transition. So those are the core RFR documents, which we expect our members to be using to help them with their documentation. And we're currently in the process of starting to convert our existing suite of documents to be based on risk-free rates, starting with our investment grade and real estate finance suite. Uh, and we are also publishing a drafting guide for the rest of our suite, uh, as it will take us uh, a bit of time to amend all of our recommended forms. Um, it's a bit of a running joke internally that the LMA has its own legacy book problem to deal with. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. So you've just going back to Sarah's first question and the first question, you mentioned legacy deals being a focus and multi-currency deals being a focus. And specifically for those multi-currency deals, we are seeing different paces of transition. For example, in the sterling loan markets, deadlines on new use have already passed. 
So where we are working on multi-currency facilities, there may need to be a hybrid approach incorporating rate switch language for certain currencies and the new interest rate provisions dealing with daily RFRs for other currencies. It is also not clear, although a consensus appears to be emerging for some currencies, on the approach to be taken to compounding daily rates to produce an interest amount at the end of a period. The announcement on the recommended Euribor fallbacks was made earlier this month, and there is ongoing uncertainty around the replacement rates for US dollar borrowings. Can you explain at a high level how the LMA is approaching the preparation of templates for multi-currency facilities agreements? It's a big question. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's a very big question. I think it's one of the, the key questions at the moment. Um, so we have already produced a, a recommended form of multi-currency agreement, which does provide flexibility for different paces of transition. Um, so it envisages a simple approach of applying compounded risk-free rates for the LIBOR currencies alongside Euribor for Euros, uh, but also contains an inbuilt switch mechanism for anything that's not based on compounding from the start. So you could use the technology in there to stagger the transition of different currencies. Uh, and that document already caters for a switch from Euribor to risk-free rates, so deals uh, in some ways with the Euro Working Group recommendations but it also adopts a simplified approach to multi-currency deals in that it adopts the same conventions across different currencies. Uh, and one of the reasons we did that was for simplicity in terms of producing a document, but also from an operational perspective, it seemed to make uh, more sense to have consistency across currencies rather than an agent and a borrower having to manage different rates and different conventions per currency. Uh, and certainly we have seen that approach being uh, adopted in some deals in the market. In respect of the US, I think that's a bit more of a difficult situation because there are effectively currently five different approaches, as, as far as I've counted, uh, under discussion in the US domestic market. Uh, and we're not planning to update our documents to reflect every single uh, approach. Uh, and what I would say is that market precedents to date do seem to use compounded SOFA alongside compounded SONIA. So any changes to our documents for US dollar, I think, would need to be based on market precedents. Thank you. Um, we said earlier that loan markets are one of the more complex areas for LIBOR transition. So picking up on that, the loan markets are an area where there needs to be uh, and we're seeing different approaches depending on the underlying market and uh, particular asset types and currencies. What can you say to us generally about the approach across sectors, for example, leverage finance, project finance, real estate finance? Do you see any evidence that LIBOR transition is affecting these loan products differently from each other? Yeah, so I think LIBOR transition does, as you say, have differing um, impacts for different products. And as a result, we did release a series of notes earlier this year focusing on considerations for particular sectors like the leverage finance market, real estate finance uh, and developing markets. I think broadly, the real estate finance market seems to have uh, adapted very well to compounded risk-free rates. And at least in the sterling market, there seems to be a, a good level of activity in that sector. With leverage finance, we have recently seen the first Sonia loan, I think driven by uh, the Q1 milestones for sterling. But because the leverage market is largely euro and US dollar denominated and driven by US practices, I think transition has been affected by the timeline in those currencies and also the uncertainty that we already talked about in the US. 
I think for project finance, and I would also link in export finance and developing markets there as well. Uh, I think there are parts of those markets that can work with compounded risk-free rates. And we've heard of parties looking to uh, adopt longer look-back periods. So, for example, 10 to 20 business days. But there are certainly parts of those markets which do need a forward-looking term rate. Uh, and again, because much of the exposures are in dollar and in euros, again, the uncertainty in the US has had an impact on transition. Uh, and I think there's also important decisions to be made as to what the fallbacks should be to forward-looking term rates, because we don't want to end up in the same situation as we are in now. Uh, and currently, there's no consensus on that just yet. Uh, talking about not ending up in the same situation again, let's turn now to current facilities that expire after 2021, the uh, the legacy book, as it were. For those facility agreements that include the rate switch provisions provided by the LMA, can you explain to our audience how those provisions are intended to work and when the rate switch would occur and what timing considerations should lenders and borrowers under these agreements bear in mind? Yeah, so the, the rate switch provisions provide for a loan to automatically switch from a, a LIBOR-based loan to a risk-free rate-based loan. Uh, and the trigger for that is a rate switch trigger event. But actually, the rate switch won't occur until uh, the actual rate switch date um, occurs. And the timing really depends on whether the parties have included a backstop rate switch date within their agreement, um, because we have seen some facilities including such backstop rate switch dates, which actually occur before uh, the end of the year in which case that's when transition will um, happen. Although it's worth saying that if there are any outstanding loans, they would continue until the end of their interest period. So any switch wouldn't sort of cut across outstanding loans that are in existence. I think other than the backstop rate switch date, there are rate switch triggers in the document, which are based on either sort of cessation or non-representativeness events. And the FCA's 5th of March announcement in relation to LIBOR did constitute a, a rate switch trigger event for the LIBOR currencies. And the way that the LMA document is drafted is that a rate switch trigger event that applies to one tenor only of a screen rate for a currency actually triggers a switch to the use of compounded risk-free rates for that currency generally. So in general, the rate switch date would happen uh, at the end of the year unless you had a, an earlier backstop date. And that's a bit different to how ISDA documents work, which provide for interpolation of continuing tenors. And this differing approach was actually based on feedback that we received from members. Although I think some market participants are now looking to change the trigger date so that US dollar LIBOR switches happen in 2023 rather than the end of this year. Because I, I think at the time people thought that everything would be moving at the same time rather than there being sort of different uh, timelines for US dollar LIBOR. Thank you. Um, that's very informative. Thank you very much. Um, you mentioned when we were talking a question or so back uh, that some products need term rates, export finance, for example, um, although it seems less so in the UK, uh, where the regulators uh, and the working group on sterling risk-free reference rates appear to have concluded that term rates are not required except for that discrete handful of examples that, that you mentioned. Um, and the LMA announced at the end of March this year that it does not currently intend to prepare recommended form facility documentation for forward-looking uh, term SONIA reference rates or TSSR. 
for the US dollar, the ARC published a set of market indicators which it said it would consider in recommending a forward-looking term SOFA. And some banks have apparently indicated that they may use a Maribor or similar term rates with a built-in credit premium. So against that rather complicated and disparate background, what evidence would the LMA need to start producing facility documentation or interest rate provisions that reflect the use of term risk-free reference rates? And what difficulties, if any, do you see in preparing such documentation? Uh, or is there a chicken and egg situation here with market acceptance required but difficult to create? Yeah, so I, I think it's still quite a, a difficult situation because in relation to the US, for example, we still don't know what the use cases for a forward-looking term rate uh, will be. And the ARC has indicated in various statements that the use cases will be limited potentially in a similar way to uh, the way they have been in the UK. So I think we need to understand what the, the limitations are, but hopefully that will be uh, forthcoming uh, in the coming months. Uh, I think we will look to produce in due course term rate documentation, certainly for our developing market and export finance suites, because there are clear use cases there for term rates. Uh, and we did publish a note earlier this year outlining considerations uh, for the market in using those term rates, highlighting in particular the areas that parties need to think about. Uh, but also we did provide some drafting for the term Sonia reference rates as well to try and assist the market with producing such documentation. Uh, and I think that does go a long way to allowing market participants to produce their own term rate documents, because ultimately it isn't as hard as producing documents based on uh, compounded risk-free rates, because at least there is that term structure there. Um, so we don't necessarily see the lack of an LMA term rate document as being a barrier to doing deals on term rates, because the architecture is largely there. And the missing pieces, I think, are largely commercial decisions. For example, I mentioned earlier that one of the key factors that we really need feedback on is what the appropriate fallbacks to a term rate should be. Uh, and whilst the ARC has a waterfall solution, I don't think that really works for products which have a genuine need for a forward-looking term rate because it envisages you falling back from a forward-looking rate to a backward-looking rate. So I think ultimately it, it's got to be a commercial decision for parties to make about what the appropriate fallback should be. Um, unfortunately, it's not something that the, the LMA can take a take a decision on. Um, certainly with our compounded risk-free rate documents, we had very clear feedback from the market about what people wanted um, as the fallback. So I would really encourage market participants to, to think about what appropriate fallback should be and, and give us that feedback really to, to help us move forward. Thanks, Cam. So we've spoken a lot already about the risk-free rates or the RFRs and the recommended forms of multi-currency term and revolving facilities agreement that the LMA published at the end of March do reference the RFRs. There does, however, seem to be a preference from some participants for a credit-sensitive rate instead of those overnight RFRs. And recently, there has been a lot of high-profile commentary around credit-sensitive rates and also their potential limitations. I guess we've got two kind of questions wrapped together. Firstly, do you anticipate that documentation may be changed to capture credit sensitive rates? And then from the data that the LMA sees, is there any perceived change in approach to capture credit sensitive rates, including perhaps dynamic credit spreads? 
Yeah, so there's certainly been interest amongst certain banks for credit sensitive rates. And I think a lot of commentary, particularly in the US uh, domestic market, um, but there has been very limited market activity uh, so far. And we haven't seen as much interest, I would say, in the European markets uh, or any deals, probably because there's a bit more certainty over here around compounded risk-free rates and deals that are being done on that basis. I think for the LMA, there are no current plans to include such credit sensitive rates in our documents. And there are three main reasons for that. I think the first being the comments that have been made by the UK and the US regulators around their concerns about the use of such rates and effectively potentially creating LIBOR under under another name. Uh, I think second, the very vocal comments that have been made by some borrowers, particularly on the, the SOFA symposium, uh, about their concern with such rates. Uh, and certainly the LMA's LIBOR working party, we expanded that a few years ago to include direct representation from borrowers uh, and also the Association of Corporate Treasurers. Um, so for us, any decision to include credit sensitive rates would need to have borrower support before we could do that. Uh, and then lastly, I think there would need to be deals in the European market um, using the rate rather than the existence of an LMA document creating a market um, for that rate. And as I said before, in the US, there do seem to be you know, various types of rates under consideration. Um, so if we were going to provide options for US dollar, I think we would need to provide you know, all five that I've counted so far to be fair. And I, I think that could risk causing further confusion. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what we need at the moment, a bit more confusion. <laughs> okay, so we talked briefly about the, the recommended forms that were published in March, multi-currency term and revolving facilities. And these pick up on the recommendation of the working group on sterling risk-free reference rates by adopting for sterling the proposed um, compounding in arrear and look back with no observation shift um, approach. Do you expect to make further updates to the suite of recommended facility documentation on these concepts? Um, and what evidence of acceptance of these concepts uh, is the LMA seeing in the loan markets? Um, and there's a very helpful compounded methodology supplement and compounded rate supplement, which seem eminently adaptable if, if possible. Um, and in addition, could I ask you how forthcoming lenders and borrowers are being in sharing information with the LMA on points such as this. I think that the list that the LMA publishes on a periodic basis of publicly disclosed RFR referencing loans is, is actually very useful, but I just wonder how forthcoming you're finding market participants being. So yeah, we, we're not looking to make any changes to the concepts in our documents at, at this stage, because it, as you say, they were based on the Sterling working group recommendations. So we'd only look to make changes, I think, to the extent that the working group made changes to those underlying recommendations, or whether we saw over time that there was a change uh, in market practice and, and the way those conventions were being uh, adopted. Uh, and I would just highlight that we have produced uh, some different versions of our documents uh, with some of the different concepts. So, for example, there's a, a version with observation shift and then versions without um, the observation shift because uh, some markets have preferred to use that. And, for example, uh, Swiss deals have been using uh, observation shift because the Swiss recommendations recommend observation shift with a lag as the alternative. Um, so we've made both available. And certainly we are trying to keep track of where 
the market is heading. And it's been pleasing to see the uptake of the LMA documentation, but also the Sterling Working Group recommendations on transactions. Uh, and we do see some differences in market. So as I mentioned, we've seen uh, Swiss only deals tend to use the observation shift because that aligns with their local recommendations. But in terms of the list of loans, I would say generally parties have been uh, forthcoming about sharing further details when we have asked them, which is really great. And we are very grateful uh, for people being so uh, so open. Um, but of course, we would love it if parties were more proactive in terms of sharing their deals with us, because often it's down to, to us to identify press releases and then go out to the banks and, and to the borrower um, and ask for the information. So, yeah, that's a, a plea that I would make um, to market participants, because, as you say, I think it is really helpful for people to see, you know, what others are doing and try and take sort of inspiration or comfort from that. Uh, so there we go. There's a, there's a plea to the market. Help, uh, you know, if you want help, then help yourselves by providing the data. Um, now, this year is going to be a busy one for developments of, in the so-called statutory solution for LIBOR transition. So the Financial Services Bill is now the Financial Services Act 2021, um, although the provisions amending the benchmark regulation are not yet in force. But we are expecting to see a lot of activity. Well, we are seeing a lot of activity from the FCA with respect to its uh, powers pursuant to the amended uh, UK BMR. Does the LMA have a view on how these powers may help LIBOR transition and the loan market? And does the LMA, for example, contemplate that there will be many loans or types of loans that could fall into the tough legacy category? We saw the consultation paper on that just last week. Um, and therefore be permitted to use so-called synthetic LIBOR under Article 23D? And if so, what changes, if any, would be required to be made to the LMA recommended form uh, documents? Yeah, so I, I think there certainly will be loans which fall into the category of tough legacy, given the sheer volume of outstanding loans, um, but also deals where all lender consent may be required uh, and may not be forthcoming. Uh, and also transactions, for example, where third party consent is required uh, to amend the loan. Uh, I think it's a bit difficult to say how many loans will fall into that category, um, just because information around the terms of loans are not always uh, public. But whether loans can use synthetic LIBOR, I think, also is, is ultimately a question for the FCA. And there are some questions that they've asked in their consultation. So I would really encourage institutions to respond to the FCA consultation paper, which closes on 17th of June, which does um, sort of set out some uh, requests for information around the scope of use of synthetic LIBOR. And I think given the FCA powers apply to UK regulated institutions, you know, one thing that we are very keen to ensure is that there isn't an unlevel playing field that ends up being created within syndicates as to the use of synthetic LIBOR. I think in terms of LMA facility agreements, a synthetic LIBOR, which is based on a term rate plus a credit adjustment spread, shouldn't necessitate too many changes to um, LMA facility agreements, given it, it will be a, a sort of a term rate structure. But there will be aspects that parties will need to think through, such as fallback clauses, definition of business days, break costs, um, etc. Um, but I think we need a bit more detail on exactly what the shape of synthetic LIBOR is going to look like.
Thanks, Cam. So that's obviously with the, the FCA focus and the changes to the UK benchmarks regulation. But there are obviously statutory solutions um, already progressed in the EU and in the US. So an obvious question for our international client base is how the various legislative proposals fit together, if at all. We don't expect you to answer that, that completely now is a big question. But what can you say to us about how the LMAs work and the legislative proposals will interact? Yeah, so uh, as you say, Karen, this is actually a key question that I have myself with the tough legacy legislation. Uh, we've certainly spent a lot of time speaking with regulators around our concerns on how the legislative proposals fit together. And I have to say, I'm not completely clear how exactly they do fit together and operate, particularly in the context of multi-currency loans with lenders from multiple different jurisdictions. Um, I think there is a real risk of an unlevel playing field being created within syndicates. So that is something that really needs to be managed. And we do continue to pursue the point with regulators in different jurisdictions, um, along with continuing to assess the information that's coming out from the regulators on tough legacy is actually a lot of the interaction is going to depend on how the powers will be used. So we are looking at various scenarios, you know, how would they work under the various pieces of legislation but I don't think there's enough clarity um, at this stage because whilst the framework legislation is in place, certainly in the EU and UK, there are further ongoing consultations on exactly how those powers will be exercised. So as a result, we do tend to place caution on reliance being placed on tough legacy solutions. So would encourage parties to actively transition to the extent feasible. I think that kind of leads quite segues quite neatly into the next couple of questions, which are about coordination. But we're going to move along a little bit and start with specific coordination. And one topic we don't have much time to cover today, but that is a part of my practice area and which we know the LMA is closely considering and has identified it. You have actually identified in your materials as for consideration is the interaction between the loan market and hedging. You've already mentioned is does work and the LMA work. ISTA very recently, on the 13th of May, published materials relating to compounding and averaging of the RFRs, and alignment is clearly important. And this is an issue that needs to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. But what can you say to us generally even about issues around loans and hedging? Yeah, so indeed, it's it's ultimately uh, an issue that needs to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. And, and parties, as they always have had to, um, even in the LIBOR world, need to look at their loan documents uh, alongside their hedging documents and be aware of any differences. Uh, and I think particularly on LIBOR transition, parties need to think about whether the loan and the hedge are moving to the same rate. Are they moving to the same conventions? What point are they transitioning? Uh, and is there consistency of approach to the credit adjustment spread? Uh, and as you mentioned, we've highlighted um, some of these issues in notes that, that we've produced on our website. Um, as long as highlighting all the great work that ISDA has done as well, including you know, having bilateral um, amendments that, that people can use to transition their loans if the protocol doesn't work, but also their newly published rate options. Uh, and actually, ISDA kindly shared a version of those with us 
um, in advance and allowed us to make comments to ensure that the loan market position was reflected in the rate options. And I think that's a really important step in alignment because certainly people have been very concerned about the different conventions between ISDA and the cash market. So I think the publication of the rate options is a really good step forward. On a slightly more focused question, do the LMA and the LSTA coordinate their work on libel transition? So we have regular dialogue with the LSTA and, and at a minimum we've got fortnightly calls um, just on LIBOR transition um, given how important the topic is. Uh, we were also both involved in a, a global loans group which involved the chairs of the different currency loan working groups getting together to discuss uh, how LIBOR transition in the different loan markets was being dealt with. Um, but I think ultimately different jurisdictions have had a different focus and different timelines, which has meant that the markets have moved uh, in different ways. For example, in the US, we're still hearing um, borrowers and banks being very much focused on the need for a forward-looking uh, term rate, whereas certainly in the UK and the European markets, when we speak to borrowers and banks, they seem to be more concerned with um, alignment with derivatives. So there do seem to be a difference in approach there. But, you know, we are coordinating to, to the extent that we are able to, um, given that our markets are moving in different ways and at different times. Yeah, and you've mentioned now several times various different types of coordination, which is, I have to say, very reassuring. And I'm sure absolutely necessary. But can you speak to us about... LMA's current coordination effort. Who are you working with on coordination efforts both here in the UK and internationally? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, we sit across various of the currency working groups. So we try and use our role on those to at least bring um, alignment. So, for example, um, you know, re most recently ensuring that flexibility was included in the euro working group conventions to allow parties to align their conventions with those that have been established in the UK and the US. Uh, we also chair a working party of trade associations internationally, which allows a forum for the trade associations to share information and also perspectives um, on transition as well. And we're also working with other trade associations to help educate members um, too. Uh, and we're also part of an ICC export finance committee um, as well, focusing on LIBOR transition, which is designed to coordinate uh, efforts between banks and ECAs on transition in the export finance market. So, yeah, the, there's a lot going on and, and sort of various pieces to fit together. <laughs> that is a lot going on. Um, and it will be critical for transition that market participants are engaged, really, and, and engaged this year. Does the LMA get the sense both from its members and more widely that market participants, particularly on the borrower side, are engaged with LIBOR transition? Yeah, so I think engagement has increased since the Sterling Q1 deadline came into effect and also the FCA announcement on the 5th of March, which I think made things very real um, for a lot of people who had probably thought LIBOR would still um, continue. Uh, and I certainly saw an uptick in queries that we were getting um, on transition. Uh, I would say that borrower engagement is also increasing given the deadlines. Uh, however, we do see uh, a mismatch in engagement within institutions where you often have core libel teams who are very much up to speed and very engaged, 
but those on the front line and relationship managers, for example, may not necessarily be as engaged um, or up to speed. Uh, and I think the issue is the same for borrowers where LIBOR has an impact beyond just financial products and affects uh, commercial contracts as well. So there is a need to spread knowledge more widely within um, institutions. And I think the other area of focus that we see for engagement is also engaging uh, developing markets as well, where there perhaps hasn't been as much of a focus on transition. Okay, thank you very much. I think you've kind of just part answered the next question by talking about spreading knowledge. But do you have any more views or any wider views on what can be done to increase engagement? Yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges, and, and I'm sure you found this as well with LIBOR transition, is just breaking down the sheer amount of information um, that is out there and breaking through the uncertainty and the various different options um, that have been made available. So I think clarity of messaging is quite key, um, but also positive messaging as well, because I think it's really unfortunate that the recent debates in the US have clouded the fact that there has actually been a lot of certainty that has been um, out there and deals have been done, borrowers have been updating their system. Um, so I think there is some real positive messaging there. So that's where I think the focus should be really clarity um, and positivity um, of messaging and going to borrowers with a product set. Um, and as I said before, institutions thinking about how they disseminate the knowledge internally. And what do you see as or what do the LMA members see as the biggest challenge to LIBOR transition in the loan market? And what do you think will help to overcome this? Yeah, so I think at the moment, members certainly see the uncertainty in the US market as probably being um, the biggest challenge because it is causing a delay to transition decisions on multi-currency um, deals because parties have been adopting a, a wait and see uh, approach. And whilst what would ultimately help is a clear direction from either the US ARC or the Fed, I don't think that will be forthcoming because it seems that there will be a range of rates that are adopted um, in the US domestic market with different borrowers preferring different solutions. So I don't necessarily see a one track approach emerging. As a result, I think parties in the international market really need to think through their approach to multi-currency deals uh, and make a decision on their approach and, and deciding what is actually important to them and what can they live with. And again, I would encourage parties who are doing deals to, to keep publicly announcing them um, as well, because that will help to build confidence of approaches being taken um, rather than parties sort of sitting back and, and adopting a, a wait and see approach and, and hoping for certainty, which might not actually come. So let's go back to the LMA's wonderful clock on its microsite, the, the <laughs> countdown. Um, what does the LMA have planned for its role in facilitating LIBOR transition for the remainder of this year? Um, what, what should we expect to see? And can you share any thoughts that you have on how we might see the year unfolding? Yeah, so uh, I think a core focus for us is on providing more documentation. So continuing to update the suite of documents that are out there um, to assist members with transition. Uh, I think also continuing our dialogue with different sectors of the market. So particularly in the developing markets uh, and export finance markets as well. Uh, and also just a key focus on continuing education. Um, in particular, the interviews that we've been doing with market participants so that we can all 
continue learning from each other and, and hopefully continue on this journey to the end of the year. Thank you very much, Cam. And as we draw today's session to a close, what is the LMA's key message on LIBOR transition? So I think our key message is that transition is happening and the tools are in place for transition and, and parties can and should be moving forward. Resources will certainly become scarce uh, the closer that we get to the end of the year. So there is a real benefit to, to getting ahead of the issue rather than adopting uh, a wait and see approach. So we would really encourage parties to decide which rates they want to move to, which rates they can actually cope with and share their experiences because we are all in this boat together. Everyone's having to go through LIBOR transition. I think it affects uh, every one of us and, and really we need to, to learn from each other in order to move forward. Thanks, Cam. That concludes today's session. Cam, thanks again to you and the LMA team for taking the time to speak with us today and for providing the LMA's perspective. And thanks to the LMA for agreeing to join our live broadcast series. And for those of you listening, thank you for taking the time. We hope you enjoyed this session. Do please check out our live broadcast channel to hear other insightful discussions with market and industry leaders, including regulators, trade associations and market participants about the work ahead and the LIBOR transition process.